Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? A big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies for helping me edit this episode, as he does with so many of them. And a reminder that the next ADHD Rewired live Q&A will be Tuesday, July 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. And on that live Q&A, Will Kerb, host of Hacking Your ADHD, and I will join ADHD Rewired host, Eric Tivers, to answer whatever questions you may have. So make sure you bring them. And of course, if you enjoy this episode or past episodes, a five-star rating and review on iTunes is always appreciated. Finally, if you haven't joined the ADHD Essentials Facebook community yet, I highly recommend you do. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up and reap the rewards. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Seth Perler. In fact, this episode has also been shared on Seth's YouTube vlog. Seth is an executive function and 2E coach who works tirelessly to help outside-the-box kids succeed. In today's episode, Seth and I discuss trauma, self-compassion, building our kids' executive function skills during the summer, and the opportunity cost of screen time. All right, let's get rolling. Seth, how are you? How's it going? How's COVID and all the fun shifts in our days? Gosh, how, yeah, I guess it's one thing at a time. How, how's it going? You know, um, I don't know. I'm having a good moment. I'm glad to see you and glad to be here with you today and hopefully share some things that'll help some families. And my mental health is pretty good. I definitely go through ups and downs with dips with what's going on. And, uh, you know, sometimes I just, my energy is really weird right now. And I will tell you that sleep is saving my mental health. Um, as much connection as I can have, um, cause I'm, you know, I've been pretty isolated. That is saving my mental health and definitely hiking and moving my body big time has been really, really important. And I just get these waves of weirdness. But I'm doing pretty good, and I'm very disturbed by a lot of what's been happening in the news and people suffering and thinking about the, you know, you and I are here because we we work with kids, and we want our kids to have a really good world to live in. We want them to grow up in a place where they can really have happy and successful lives. Um, And kids who struggle, and of course, there's been um, countless inequities in education uh, since since we can remember, and kids who struggle with executive function and ADHD are even more at risk than your neurotypical kids in terms of being able to create a great life. So when there's inequities and they have legitimate struggles in neurodiversity, and then it's really uh, something that we need to be very mindful of and really support these kids. That's what we're here to talk about, right? Is how do we support our kids with 
ADHD with executive function challenges? How do we support the parents of those kids and potentially their needs around executive function and ADHD and structure? I know as a parent myself, there's waves and there's times when you're cruising and there's times when it's hard. And I know my guys just hit summer. So summer vacation started for my kids on Wednesday. And as a guy who has ADHD, who has got kids at home and has a business that he runs and a wife who's now going to work, she's a scientist, so she has lab stuff to do, trying to navigate all of those various challenges, as well as the state of the country and the world. It's been hard. I feel like I'm getting pulled in a lot of different directions. I feel like I am not doing a good job with any one direction necessarily. And I'm trying to resist the dopamine rush of arguing on social media or watching TV rather than editing a podcast episode, trying to just get the things done that I need to get done. And it's incredibly challenging. That's where I would kind of like to start is talking about how to support parents in supporting their kids and then move in from there. Cool. Well, that brings to, to mind something that I don't know if, uh, so, and for my audience, um, Brendan, do you want to tell them who you are real quick? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Brendan Mahan. I am the host of the ADHD Essentials podcast, and I'm an ADHD coach, consultant, and speaker. Uh, I used to do workshops for schools. I don't know what that's going to look like because <laughs> things are virtual now instead of in-person. I used to do a lot of in-person work. Uh, and I also run online parent coaching groups, and I have like one-on-one clients and that kind of fun stuff. And uh, Brendan and I, on this conversation, this is going to be a little bit different than my normal um, vlogs for you, but so sorry for uh going off the beaten path a little bit, but I remember the first time I spoke with you was about a year ago right now. Yeah. And I remember being in Portland, Oregon for a conference that I go to every year and stepping outside with the cell phone and it's a Portland summer day and it's kind of cloudy, kind of sunny and this and that and talking to you and just pacing up and down the street corner uh, in downtown Portland, talking to you and getting to know you. And then we did a podcast and we've- We did TIFOS. Yeah. And in, in the summit, yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it, I'm really glad that we've connected and it's good to reconnect now. Yeah. When you just spoke and you said, you know, I feel like I'm not there, you know, I'm not doing everything how I want to be doing it. I bet a lot of parents and teachers right now too are feeling that way. And one thing that I want to mention conceptually is this thing uh, w- where we have sort of a collective global trauma right now. The entire planet, everybody on earth is sort of sensing, it's like, uh, somehow, because we are, the world is, is sort of flat now, we are all connected now. We are all aware of what's going on in different parts of the world. We're all experiencing trauma. And that interferes with, with us, with our executive function, with our prefrontal cortex, with our ability to execute, our ability to prioritize, to motivate, all of these things. The trauma that we are experiencing is sort of this low-level hum that we're all constantly feeling. And what that means is that our nervous system on a very literal level, our nervous systems, our body is feeling unsafe. So a trauma response means that we are sensing that there is something unsafe. There are many things unsafe that are going on right now, and we feel it in our bodies. And there's sort of this constant hum of what's the next threat? What's the, the, what's going on in the family? What's going on in the news? What's going on in my community? There's just sort of this constant low level hum that's going on. And intermittently, we have these spikes of big stress with what's going on in our respective families or personal lives or how we respond to the news or whatever it is. But it's sort of like, here's our baseline of stress. 
But now we have a heightened baseline of stress where we're con- our body is constantly like, oh my gosh, is something going to happen? That's what the nervous system is doing. And then there are these spikes. And some people have massive spikes. Some people have small spikes. Some have a, a often, some have few. But for, and especially for us families with kids with ADHD and executive function struggles who tend to run hot anyway, their baseline is even higher and they're having more spikes and more stress. And so it's, it's very legitimate. So if you, the viewer or the listener are experiencing sort of this constant stress, like it's legitimate. We have legitimate collective global trauma going on right now. And I want you to honor that and really listen to your nervous system and listen to what you need and honor your boundaries and, and your needs physiologically, emotionally, mentally, socially, you know, really listen to your boundaries. And I agree. I talk about that with my clients a fair amount. We have to navigate, I guess, that we're living through a global trauma. And also, depending on what country you're in, there might be other cultural traumas that are happening too. And then you have whatever personal traumas you're experiencing. If, you've, if you're experiencing a loss right now, that might be there. If you're, if you're getting sick, that might be there. We are in the midst of a whole lot of really hard stuff. And we have to like you said, honor that. We have to sort of look at it with eyes wide open and accept it and say, this is, this is a time where things are exceptionally challenging and what's the best way for me to respond to that? And how can I be sort of the most, I guess, emotionally intelligent around it? Yeah. How can we navigate this, move through this? How can we preserve our mental health as best as possible? Not only as the adult or the parent or the teacher, but also with our kids. So how can we preserve our mental health and how can we enhance or build upon our mental health? There are opportunities during this time to help our kids, to be good models for our kids, to help them learn these skills of working with difficult emotions. All of our kids will work with difficult emotions throughout their lives. What we want them to do with those difficult emotions is make the best decisions possible whether it's a relationship issue when they're older, whether it's a career issue when they're older, whether it's choosing college or not, or we want them to be able to make good decisions. And we have this uh, sort of rational mind and this emotional mind. And how do we meld them together to make good decisions rather than be run by one or the other and find out, which I'm sure you and I have both had plenty of experiences in our lives where we find out months or years later that we made a decision that if we could turn back time, we'd probably do things a little bit differently we can use this collective, this traumatic time to say, okay, this is what is. It is, it's terribly um, uncomfortable and scary and all these things. How can we use this to plant seeds with our kids to help them learn to work through difficulties? This is not going away. There is good that can come out of this. Yeah. And also how can we practice the things that you mentioned earlier, right? Like, are we getting our kids moving? Are we helping them go to bed at a reasonable hour? Are we doing those things for ourselves? That basic self-care and, and really lifestyle stuff, not like, not that anyone's going to go get a manicure necessarily right now or a massage. I suppose some people will, but that's, that's not the kind of self-care that we want to look at. We want to look at self-care around, are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating healthy? Are you taking a walk, going on a bike ride, exercising in your basement or your, or your guest room or wherever you can exercise? Are you taking and making those efforts where you can? I know for me, 
the diet part, like that's a thing that falls down when stuff gets really stressed out for me, right? Like it, those chocolate chip cookies are delicious and they provide that little dopamine spike that lets me move on to the next thing that I'm struggling with. But because I ate the chocolate chip cookies, I maybe didn't eat the salad because I wasn't hungry enough. And so long term, it's whittling away at that healthier eating that I've been doing because I'm appeasing a short term need, honestly. That's a challenge. That's an area that I tend to trip in. Right. But then can you can you move through that and also have self-compassion? We have the inner critic. We all, you parents watching our kids, we all have inner critics um, that beat us up. And can we t- tame that? Can we use this time also to use experiences like that? And let's say we keep choosing to eat the cookie, whatever. Can we can we still tell the inner critic, you know what? You're You're not the boss of me. You're just a thought in my head. I'm not happy with what I ate, but I don't really care. Day's over. We'll start again tomorrow and I can repeat it tomorrow if I want. I don't know, but can we be kind and compassionate to ourselves during this time? Which is an amazing, we talk about modeling, modeling for our kids, our own self-care and self-acceptance and self-compassion. If we want our kids to be self-compassionate, not be too hard on themselves, not be too perfectionistic, not have their inner critic rule them, us modeling that is one of the most powerful things we can ever do. And also providing our kids with some, some structure around that. Like, like one of the things I tell my kids is that I gave my inner critic a name, right? Like my inner critic is named Zach because that allows me to depersonalize those thoughts so that when Zach is like, right, I can be like, thank you for your input, Zach, but I don't, I don't need you. You're not helping. That's not accurate. Feelings aren't facts, that kind of stuff. And giving our kids those strategies, right? Like talking to them about what feels hard and what's making them upset. And is it based in truth? Is it based in just a misperception? Is it based in like, yeah, today, sure, you spilled a bunch of milk and that is really difficult and it was a big mess, but that doesn't mean that you're a klutz and a terrible person. It just means that you spilled some milk. So helping them with that inner critic and helping them talk back to it a little bit is critical. It is. It really sort of, in, in a good way, it depersonalizes it. So giving it a name or what have you really is such a good strategy because what we often tend to do with people, whether it's friends or kids who are going through stuff like that, we can say things to them like, just stop thinking about it. Well, that's not a strategy. That doesn't do anything. You don't just stop thinking about it. That doesn't help anybody. But to give someone a strategy to say, um, like you said, feelings aren't facts. So parents who are watching this right now, you might want to write that down and put that on the fridge. I love that saying. I've heard feelings are real, but they're not reality. What is a feeling anyway? You know, we're we we are having sensations in the body. We're having thoughts associated with it. We have a narrative and a story. We're trying to find what, what are the facts on this and sort of giving it a name or giving it a personality and that, that can say, hey, it's not me. We don't have to believe. There's another saying, don't believe everything you think. We don't have to just believe every thought we have. We can actually have mindfulness or self-awareness and slow down. And as adults, we've learned to do this to a greater or lesser extent. But that's the more intentionally we teach that to our kids and don't just expect them to pick it up through osmosis, but guiding them to teach them how we've built strategies around this is priceless. And related to that, kind of in order to pull that off, we have to foster a connection with our kids. Because if we're not prioritizing that, they're going to be like, what are you coming out of nowhere and telling me that like, 
I should give my voice a name and not listen to it. Like, you don't know what I'm thinking. You don't know what's going on, especially if they're older. Like, teenagers are not going to be done with that unless we've been spending time with them. And I know that's a challenge right now, too. Like, even, I mean, I champion that idea. And I don't know that I'm doing it right because there's days when I need time to myself. I'm not getting anything close to the kind of time to myself I used to get. I, for years, was working from home. My wife would be at work. My kids would be at school. And I would have six hours to get my stuff done and sort of be home. <laughs> and, and if I needed 10 minutes to just sit on the couch and not do anything and let my brain slow down, I could do that. And that is not the situation for me anymore. If I need those 10 minutes and I try to sit on the couch, someone's going to come in and want to talk to me, want to play a game, want to watch TV, want to use something in the room that I'm in just by coincidence. About the only place I can get some solitude is my office. But if I'm in my office, it's not a break because I'm surrounded by all the things that I feel like I should be doing. And that doesn't let me get the kind of space that I might need. That struggle with getting some connection with my kids while also feeling like I need some space is pretty tricky, but it's still critical. And I try my best to pay attention to making, making the effort to connect with my kids in the ways that work best. And then leveraging that to get some time to myself when I need it, because they know that I'm going to be there later. They know I'm going to return to that connection and I'm not just abandoning. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I started creating a roadmap recently that I'll put on my website when I get done with it. But it's basically how do you help your child transform, whether it's a coach, a teacher, a parent, whatever. And I put it the very, 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 very first step of how do you help them transform from point A to point B. And my point A to point B with executive function is that they're struggling with a bunch of stuff. Point B is basically they have good enough executive function that you as the parent or the teacher are like, okay, this kid's going to be okay. Well, that first step of that, that I put in my sort of roadmap that I'm designing is connection. Because I, my, one of the biggest questions, you probably get this too from parents, is how do you get buy-in and ownership? Because I always talk about buy-in and ownership and they're always like, how do you get it? Well, it starts with connection starts with the relationship. And sometimes there's a lot of rebuilding and repair that needs to happen. And I think for parents, it's kind of hard to imagine like the, it can be when I say a lot of repair and rebuilding, like it might be family therapy for a couple years before, you know, like, but either way, it starts with connection. If you're going to get buy-in and ownership. So we're talking about, um, you know, the inner critic and how to talk to your kid about the inner critic when you have a, especially a teenager who doesn't want to hear it from you. Well, it starts with the connection. And the relationship, and you start to get buy-in and ownership, and then you can have those conversations. I mean, you don't wait until that happens to have those conversations. Obviously, you still try, but you know, different families are at different places in terms of how much repair and regrowth and rebuilding for the connection. But the point is investing the time in trying to connect. And I like what you said before. You're like, I don't know if I'm doing it well right now or whatever. It's like, doesn't matter. We still, we just put one foot in front of the other. Take a baby step, take a baby step, connect, 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 have fun, play, laugh, watch a stupid movie, play board games, have an argument, get mad at each other, and then repair the argument, work it through, come back and talk to your child, blah, blah, blah. Like we're allowed to be human in this game. You know, there's no perfection or anything like this. It's, it's messy and it's okay to be messy, but keep taking another step, connect, have fun, listen, hear each other, see each other, try to understand each other have the difficult conversations. It can be messy. There are times when it's not messy. 
have meals together, blah, 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 blah. But it's invest, invest, put a quarter in the piggy bank, put a quarter in the piggy bank, put a penny in the piggy bank, keep adding to that relationship and connection with your child. And pay attention to how it helps you as well, because it does. My boys and I went for a bike ride the other day. There's the physical activity. There's also the time with my kids. Uh, yesterday we went and got pizza. We just went to a local pizza joint, sat outside, ate some slices. That time together, we talked about what we wanted to do this summer and what, what that might look like and what kinds of activities you wanted to engage in and where we're going to try to find adventure and that kind of stuff. And that time helped me relax. It helped me feel better about my relationship with them. It helped me let go of some of the stress from the job and the world and all that stuff because it was just hanging out with them. And because their worldview is smaller, joining them in their worldview helps me get out of my bigger worldview that is a kind of overwhelming sometimes. Connection is good. It's, it's healthy. It's everything. Should we talk about some of the things we were planning before? Yeah, sure. So Brendan and I were talking about, you know, we're in the summer of 2020 and should you, what should you do to navigate ADHD and executive function? Are there things that you can be doing now? Does it matter at this point? Let's start there. Should we be even worried about ADHD and executive function this summer? Yes, of course, right? Like school is going to come around again and it's going to be different. And the fact that school is different means that it's going to be harder, right? Like the executive functioning side of school next year is probably going to be more challenging because who knows what the model is going to be. They might be in school the whole time, but they're still worried about, are they going to get sick from that? They might be in school part-time and have those still same concerns, but also be virtual schooling half the time. And that's a lot of transitions and a lot of new expectations. They might be only virtual schooling. And we all know how that went this past year. So focusing on executive functions is still pretty critical. Like my kids, we've had a schedule for since COVID started. We break it down by hour. Like first at nine to 10 is this, 10 to 11 is that. That calendar is still up there. That schedule is still on the wall. We're still working, using it every day. There's a few more open slots than there used to be, right? Where it's like kind of free time. It's not go to school or do math or whatever. But that support structure for their executive functions and for, for their expectations is really beneficial. Not the least of which because one of the hours is screen time. And that helps keep screen time from expanding into the whole day for my kids, which is an easy thing to have happen over the summer if you don't stay on top of it. And I know some parents are already in that spot and are trying to figure out how to back off on screen time, right. which is a whole different animal. Way harder to back out of it than extend. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. We definitely need to keep uh, working on this stuff throughout the summer. I, I do have parents who are highly, highly structured and linear. And when you have a couple where both parents are highly, highly structured and linear, there can be a lot of anxiety in the parents that their kid has to be doing this, 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 and this. And we have to, you, you know, there's a balance. You, you don't, less is more oftentimes. So for those parents, I would say something different than to other parents. You might have two parents that struggle with executive function. And then you have two parents, one does, one doesn't. And then you have your split families where, you know, they're divorced and one parent has exceptional executive function, one doesn't, or both do, whatever. We have all these different combinations. But the point is, is that 
we don't we don't want to go to extremes. We don't need to go way to the extreme of oh my gosh, they have to be doing this every day and writing every day and math every day and executive function every day and working on ADHD every day. And we also don't have to go to the extreme of it's a free for all. Let's just give them a couple weeks to totally do nothing because you will pay for that uh, when, when you suddenly discover oh my gosh, my kid needs some structure. And then as an educator, as a teacher for 12 years, and I still work with these kids, but I noticed that there's all these different personalities in the kids. And one of the things that I see is when you have a child who is in a really unstructured school and unstructured classroom, and they struggle with executive function, too much freedom, often you pay a price for that. And then when that same kid is in a super linear school, too much restriction, you will pay a price for it. We're always looking for that balance between these kids do need structure. They need some structure, but they need just enough structure and just enough freedom and, and choice and movement to there's sort of this sweet spot. And it's really hard because every kid's different and they're always changing. These human beings are young, their brains are changing, their social lives are changing. It's like every six months they're a new human being. And once you start to figure them out, there's someone new. But we're always sort of looking for that sweet spot between structure, freedom, structure, freedom, structure, freedom. And for the super linear parents, they can take it to too far structured. For the super sort of ADD executive function struggle parents, they can take it to the too much loosey-goosey. But we are our kids need and want, even though they may not admit it, they want structure because it feels safe. It feels predictable. It feels sane. It tells the nervous system that there's a method to the madness. And, and then within those structures, we can determine what do we want in our structures. We want connection. We want relationship time. We want fun time. We want free time. We, we want time for um, organization. So right now during this, this summer, there, we can do decluttering projects um, and reorganizing um, their stuff, their papers, their digital stuff, their bedrooms, their whatever. Um, but we can do little, what I've been calling micro projects throughout the summer, which is helping the brain learn to practice organization. And in terms of creating structure, the way that I do it, right? The reason I kind of, we go by hour, hour by hour. One, it follows the clock. It's teaching my kids to do that in real life. Your calendaring at your house is more hour by hour. It's It's not really a calendar. It's like a schedule that I just, it's, each hour is a strip. One of those school dry erase, like each hour has a strip that's dry erase in a blue pocket thing. It's literally a teacher schedule for a, like a preschool classroom. Uh, yeah, those are great. Yeah. So we use that, even though it might say it might, it might go hour by hour and each hour is chunked. It's not always an hour's worth of activity, right? So like one o'clock to two o'clock might be change your sheets. That does not take an hour, right? And the rest of that time, they're kind of figuring it out and doing whatever they want. And it might be something they were doing earlier. It might be starting the next thing sooner. So it's structure, but there's forgiveness and flexibility built into that structure. Almost none of the hour-long activities are actually an hour long. It's just in this hour window, this is what's going on. With the exception of the screen time, because they're always going to use the full hour on that. Um, <laughs> but And sometimes it bleeds over, right? Like if we go for a bike ride and it takes an hour and a half, then... Uh, Whatever was after that, it's not a big deal. And we make, I make those decisions and they're getting to the point where they're making those decisions around if we're going to go for a bike ride and that is an activity that might expand into the next hour, then we want to put something in that second hour 
that's a little more flexible. It, either it takes less time or if we don't do it, it doesn't matter or something like that. And I've worked with parents who are like, well, we try to do it. We break ours down to 45 minute chunks or we break ours down to half hour chunks because my kid needs the structure. And I'm like, that's, that's too much. Like that, if you mess up anything, if you have half an hour chunks and you, something runs long at 11 a.m., like you're still suffering for that at seven. And hopefully your schedule, you're out of the schedule by seven. Ours, ours ends at like five. So you don't want that kind of a tight schedule. You want a looser one. For us, an hour is great. An hour is perfect for our family. It doesn't mean it's good for everybody. You can even do something as simple as like, this is what we're doing in the morning. This is what we're doing in the middle of the day. And this is what we're doing in the afternoon or the evening, right? You can split it up in that direction too. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you have, yeah, some sense of structure. And and then when I'm teaching sort of planning with my middle and high schoolers, we have your daily plan, but you also have like your planner plan and your monthly plan. And, and then you have sort of your long-term plans. But I'm a big fan of those cheap $5 black and white big desk calendars and putting it up on the wall and then writing important things on there. You don't put everything on there, but that's a great way for them to, I mean, I have, I have high schoolers that don't even know how a calendar works still. So it's good for them to see that all the time, the daily plans, you know, whether it's by hour or whatever, like you said, the morning, afternoon, evening, and it doesn't have to be rigid, but you, you do need to know where your boundaries are. And I think one of the things that you said is when, when it can be too much, you know, that an hour works for your family. I think a good way for a parent to see if it's too much is to watch your child's body language. If you notice that the discussions you're having around what needs to get done is causing so much tension and um, distance between you and your child, your child's body language and vocal tone is going to give you cues to, okay, well, how you know, we have the issue of getting certain things done, but we also have the issue of tension in the relationship. Why is that? This is an opportunity again to connect and, and not just say, no, this has to be done, but be like, I feel distant from you. Uh, let's, wh what's going on? How do we work with this stuff? What kind of structure do you want? Ask them too, you know? Yeah. But a lot of times we, oh my gosh, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about homework lately because I want to do a massive, massive, massive piece this summer on homework. I'm just so against most homework, especially for these kids. Um, it just causes so much suffering, but we are in this sort of task-driven, check-it-off-the-checklist society, and it's like, wow, we really need to think what's important in our family and in our life. What kind of life do we want them to have? Do we want them to be taskmasters their whole life? Connected to that sort of that taskmaster idea, one of the things I've done with my kids, and it's an ongoing conversation. This is nothing we've fully committed to, but trying to frame the summer around what do you want to make, do, and learn? Let's look at that. Let's, what is it? Is there something you want to make? Is there something you want to like learn how to make? And then you got all three, right? You learn how to make it, then you make it, and making is doing and all that stuff. Giving them that framework has helped them to think about what the summer should be and what they want to get out of it. Because for a lot of parents, we are the summer camp now. And even as a parent, it helps. Like, how do I even think about the summer? Well, you can make stuff, you can do stuff, and you can learn stuff. So what is, how is that going to go? That's the micro projects, right? What do you want to do? There might be some making in there. You're probably learning how to do stuff. I've got a grill I need to fix, like the, the gas lines on or clean them. I don't know what the problem is. 
but that's I'm gonna have to learn how to do that, and then we're gonna have to do that. And and the other thing that really gets my kids going a little more than the make do and learn is when I say to them like, what kinds of adventures do you want to have? Admittedly, those adventures are a little more limited than they've been in the past. It's not like we can go randomly to a trampoline park or something. That's not exactly an option at the moment. But there's plenty of parks to hang out in and mountains to climb and places to hike and and that kind of stuff that we'll be looking at. Yeah, I really like the the make, learn, and do because this summer is going to go by in the blink of an eye. Next thing you know, it's it's going to be fall 2020. Next thing you know, it's going to be 2021. And when our kids' brains are so plastic and malleable, and this is such a good time, so we don't want it to be a free-for-all where it just goes by and they and we haven't invested borders into the piggy bank of life, of executive function, of of projects, of like them doing little projects for fun or adventures for fun. There is so there are so many learning opportunities in those adventures. It does not have to look like traditional schooling. Um, you know, even what did you say? The grill, like there can be math there. There's tons of math with the grill. You have temperature, you have the pressure of the gas, you have measurements of the thing and you have the money to purchase the parts you need. You have planning, you have organizing and scheduling so many things. And all of that is executive functioning, right? It's important to look at it that way. And it also means that not replacing a gas grill necessarily or building, fixing one, but but there's probably some tasks where you can be like, hey, we need to do this thing. Kid, how would you do it? Like, how would you attack this problem? What do you think? You make a plan and you do this. One small thing I have to do is I have to rearrange my comic book collection, my graphic novel collection, and sort of alphabetize them in bookshelves because I've gone from one bookshelf to two bookshelves and they're a train wreck. I could give that to my kids. Figure this out. Alphabetize it by character. And that's an executive functioning challenge, right? Or I could have them do that with their books. Taking one of those micro projects that you might have going on, give it to your kids. Or at the very least, have a conversation in advance with them around how do you think we should do this and have them come up with the plan. And and maybe you need to tweak stuff here and there. Maybe you don't. If their way will work, but it will take an hour longer than you your plan would, maybe you just take an hour longer to do the plan so that they get some validation they feel like they actually executed on something and, and got to do the thing. The way you frame it is so good. And what, what happens a lot of times is us as adults is we say, no, that's not going to work. And we can see the light. We can see in the future. We've had enough life experience to know, no, that way is going to take an hour longer or that way wouldn't even work at all. But we often deprive them of the experience to learn that through experience and safe ways. So I often talk with parents about taking safe risks. And there are so many times right now when who cares if it takes them an hour longer? They'll probably learn. And then also it can be a connection. You do it with them and you you do it their way and ask their sleep. But so often we want to be like, no, let's do it this way. This way will be better. And we, as the, the parent, think that we, and we're try our intentions are good, but we're often holding them back from really walking through an experience. I can't tell you how often I'm working with a kid and they say, is it right? Is the answer right? And my response to them is, what do you think? And for some kids, it's so frustrating because they just want to know if it's the right answer. But I want them to think. And usually when they tell me, well, I think something's wrong with this, I'm like, that's right. There's something inside you that I want you to connect with. You should listen to that voice. You're right. Something's wrong. What is it? Or they're like, yeah, I think it's right. And often when they say, I think it's right, I say, 
are you 100% sure or 99% sure it's right? And when they say 100% sure it's right, they're usually right. And when they say 99% sure, I'm usually like, actually, you're right. There's something off here. What is it? But I'm not rescuing them. We do too much rescuing and too much advice giving and too much logic and too much rationalization. It's like, allow them to have their experience in these safe times. Then when it comes to real life challenges and real life difficulties, they've had experience of thinking things through, just having validation that their thinking is valuable and that they we do trust them. Even when we don't trust what they're thinking, we do trust them enough to allow them to explore those things. It's so critical that we give our kids that space and that trust to do it their way and let them figure it out, even when it's hard for us. And as a dad, yeah, it's hard for me sometimes. And it, it's especially hard for me when I feel that time pressure, when I'm like, we just need to get this done and move on. And sometimes the time pressure is false. Sometimes I don't really have to rush things. Like we can just, if it takes all day, it takes all day. It doesn't matter. Often it's, it's my time pressure, it's not their time pressure. It's cultural. I mean, we again, we live in this sort of task-driven world that we have to be productive. And I don't even necessarily mean it that way, right? Like I, I might, let's say I have to go do a podcast interview with Seth Perler in 15 minutes, right? And the thing that they're doing is going to take them 45 minutes. And I'm like, just do it this way because you can get it done in 15 minutes. Or you can do it your 45-minute way and I can just not be here while you do this activity, like while you fold your laundry or whatever. I can just go downstairs and do the interview while you do this thing that you're fully capable of doing on your own. But I'm so caught up in like steering the ship that I don't always recognize that, that I can just bounce and go do the thing I need to do and they can figure this out. They're not going to burn the house down. Worst case scenario, there's just a bigger mess than there was (laughs) when I come back upstairs. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that bigger mess. So that's another important perspective that I've had to learn is that sometimes the pressure I'm feeling is on my end. It's They don't have to be a part of it. Yeah. And sometimes when we do put that pressure on them, we are modeling that and we're telling them about this sort of anxiety mindset that we have and that they're, they're going to learn from us. And we need to really think about how, how much we influence them with that stuff because we do. Yeah. I wanted to talk about something real quick called opportunity cost. And I'm just as I'm thinking about it, because again, putting putting a penny in the piggy bank, um, everything we do, we are not doing something else. So this concept, you can look up opportunity costs on Google or YouTube, but every time we're doing something, we are not doing another thing. So if I decide to go watch Netflix for five hours today, I'm choosing not to do other things, anything. I mean, I might not be going for a hike. I might not be connecting with my family or doing a project that I want to do. So, and then every time we do, we could be do. I could be, you know, going on a hike, but then when I'm going on the hike, I can't be doing other things, but everything's a choice. What my fear is, and what I'm sure you and I have both seen a lot over the years with a lot of these kids who struggle with executive function is that they're not investing in things for their long-term well-being because they're only invested in things that are for the short-term dopamine rush or whatever, you know, just kind of um, things that really, and and particularly in in this day and age, um, screen time. And screen time, there's plenty of benefits to it. But what I'm worried about is, you know, the kid who sleeps until 2 p.m., wakes up, does gaming until 2 a.m., and he eats Cheetos all day long. And because of that investment, 
in, in those things for multiple years, when they're 25 or 30 or 35, they're going to be having a lot of physical issues, issues from being immobile when they were kids, sitting around all the time, health issues, heart issues, body pain, back pain, blah, 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 relationship issues because they haven't been practicing con real connection with the people that they care about, uh, financial issues, just the opportunity cost that even though uh, I'm not saying to stress out about the summer, but some structure and some boundaries and some investment in things that are really going to help them be able to create the life they want is definitely <laughs> important. Yeah. And some level of skill building, right? Like yep. even if it's weird stuff, like my, my guys and I, I'm going to work on teaching them how to cook in a camp Dutch oven. I spent last summer figuring out how to do it for myself. We'll spend this summer kind of helping them through it and learning new recipes and that kind of stuff. And then we'll like, we'll figure out that grill and, and I don't know what else we've got a, we've got a cornhole game that we're going to have to stain. We've got like little sort of those mini projects, all of which are skills that you need to learn and figure out how to do. And there are tons of skills involved with that. There is math and science and history. And, and like you're talking about like staining something, like you're learning not only how to use the brushes and stuff, you're learning how to read instructions. You're learning about safety and toxicity. And like, there's just so many opportunities for learning, even though we're not writing papers or doing multiple choice tests or, um, you know, the traditional school stuff. So don't, don't, don't underestimate the value of real life experience. And with all of that said, just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? You know, my only ending thing is, yes, you do teach executive function during the summer. It's not rocket science. It, but the last thing is the connection. And remember to have fun, connect and enjoy your time with your child. You're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.